Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, with a message titled, Intolerant Paganism. So turning your Bible to Acts 16, verses 16 to 24, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When I began this series, and here I mean my series examining Acts chapters 16 to 20, well, I began by noting that Gibbons, in his massive work, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, blames the Christians with the destruction of the empire. Starting with what many thought of as a small sect, a new religion, this new religion had no power to challenge the imperial might of Rome, but in the end, the gods of paganism would fall and faith in Jesus would conquer. Now, in 1866, English poet Algernon Charles Swinburne tried to capture the death of the old pagan religions. He put words into the Emperor Julian's mouth, you know, as Julian lay dying. He remembered that he had tried to reverse the official endorsement of Christianity by the Roman Empire. Swinburne's poem puts a lament in the mouth of the last pagan emperor. You know, at one point in the poem, the emperor who's lamenting says, O gods dethroned and deceased, wiped out in a day, from your wrath is the world released, redeemed from your chains, men say. Then in another time, speaking of Jesus, the emperor says, Wilt thou take all, O Galilean? That is, will you leave nothing to the old paganism? And then again, Julian is speaking to Jesus, and he says, Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean and the world has grown gray under thy breath. He admits that the gods were cruel and fickle, and yet it was those gods that he had loved, and in the place of them comes clothed with mercy, pity, and compassion, Jesus. But Julian finds this pale, gray, and barren, not the color and terror of the Roman gods and Greek gods. Julian then says of Jesus, I kneel not before you. Now, Let's get back to Gibbons and his decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbons blames the Christians for the destruction of Rome. He argued that Christianity was more intolerant than the paganism that had preceded it and hence served to fracture the empire. And of course, that's a constant charge brought against Christian faith even today. Then when it conquered, it proved to be intolerant. Now I'll come back to that, but let's get back to that time which is long before the Christian faith was in any position to challenge the paganism of Greece and Rome. You know, yesterday we noticed that Paul had arrived in Philippi, you know, the ancient city that prided itself in being, you know, an outpost of Rome. Lydia, a wealthy merchant, and a number of other women were meeting outside the city for prayer on the Sabbath day. It becomes clear that there were probably no Jews left in the city, but these women were God-fearers, that is, they were Gentiles, they had heard of the God of Israel, and they had begun to worship him. Luke tells us that the Lord opened Lydia's heart. You know, as Paul's sharing the gospel, she and her household believe they're baptized. In effect, we have here the first European convert to Jesus. And with her household also converting to faith, we have to assume this would include family members, servants, and business colleagues. And since her business was lucrative, and since she had contacts in the highest strata of Greek and Roman culture, well, one would have to believe that her conversion was indeed a significant moment. Well, very good. The gospel has taken hold in Europe. And with that, we also see that Paul must now engage himself in teaching what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. And with that, something rather unique takes place. 
Acts 16, 16 to 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. Now, notice again, our paragraph begins as we were going to the place of prayer. Now, in this case, the we will be Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke who records this event. They are on their way to the same place of prayer, the one outside of the city near the river where they first met the women who met there to pray. It's outside of the city so that the worshiping of the God of Abraham, the Jewish God, does not get them into trouble with the city. You'll also remember that these events coincided with other events. Somewhere around this time, that is in AD 49, the Emperor Claudius had banished Jews from Rome, and it might be that since Philippi was an outpost of Rome, the Philippians had simply followed suit. It seems likely from what is to follow. And so recognizing the sensitivity around worshiping the God of Israel, these women had met outside the city. And since there were no 10 Jewish men, they had no synagogue, just a place of prayer. And that, it would seem, is where Paul is occupied in ministry. Now, on several occasions, they're being followed by a slave girl. Our translation says she had a spirit of divination, but the literal translation would say she had a spirit of python. Yeah, that's a snake, a python. Now, simply reading it that way makes very little sense to readers in our day. And so we're going to have to understand from the time in which it happened. There was in Greece a famous city, the city of Delphi. Delphi was known for the Oracle of Delphi. You know, the Oracle was a prophetess who would say things that people thought came from the gods. You know, under most occasions, the Oracle would be a young woman who would be high on all manner of hallucinogenic drugs. In this drug-induced state, meditative state, she would utter things that the Greeks took very seriously. And from her, they would make plans regarding the future, everything from planting crops to going to war. And in truth, what she said was often unclear, and it led to some rather interesting pseudoscience of interpreting what the oracle had actually meant. But that happened in Delphi, and what does that have to do with this slave girl in Philippi? Well, in Delphi, the symbol of the spirit of, or the oracle of Delphi, was a python. It was this spiritual python that was said to guard the oracle. But there is more. The python was also a symbol of something called augury. And if you don't know what that means, this is a practice of interpreting omens. And these omens came from observing the behavior of birds as well as other animals. It also included dissecting the animals and making divinations by observing their liver. It's complex. So we've got to assume that this girl is a slave. She's demon-possessed. And because she has the python spirit living in her, she would be seen as being a clairvoyant. She could predict the future and that consulting her would be very important for any future enterprise. That was the nature of Greek pagan religion. But there was one thing more. No one could consult this girl for free. Her owners charged money for the consultation. And so this girl was a gold mine. She doesn't profit from it. Her owners do. And again, that was the nature of Greek paganism. A demon-possessed girl used to run a business and make money. You know, the word faith people in our day, you know, they can eat their heart out. This is money-making religion. 
And then this very girl has taken a following Paul and his team. And everywhere they go, she's calling out, these men are servants of the Most High God. Wherever they go, she keeps calling it out, as loud as she can, following them, calling out to anyone who's nearby. And since people in that city had great respect for her oracles, they were paying attention. So what do we make of that? Well, for one, there's a pattern here that highlights the work of Satan and demons. Let's go back to Luke 4, 33 to 35 for an incident in the life of Jesus. And there we read, And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. You know, we also know that when the book of Acts begins, the ministry of the apostles gets going, and then we meet a demon-possessed man named Simon, and he's a sorcerer. And when Paul's in Cyprus, we meet a man named Elimus. He's also a sorcerer who opposes them. You know, at any rate, it shouldn't surprise us. I mean, after all, demons, hearing the preaching of Jesus, know there's a battle raging. And this girl is shouting, these men are the servants of the Most High God. You know, in the Greek world, this title, Most High God, sometimes was applied to the god Zeus, who's the head of the Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses. And so it's unclear what she actually meant. Did she mean to say, you know, these men preach is equivalent to our own religion? I think that's likely. Their religion and our religion is roughly the same. Nonetheless, these are holy men. Now, at first, you know, the apostle ignores her. That's because, you know, they come there to preach Jesus, not to take on Greek religion. I mean, after all, Greek religion does not offer salvation and reconciliation with God or the forgiveness of sins. But after a while, when she doesn't stop, Paul confronts her. In the name of Jesus, he commands the demon, come out of her. And then just like that, the demon is thrown out. And at that moment, the city of Philippi comes to a halt. It's as if everyone stops whatever they're doing. This was, quite frankly, the most stunning thing this city had ever seen. We've been holding off, but now is the time to make an exciting announcement about In Doubt. The Young Adult Ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is now welcoming Andrew Marcus as its new host and director of In Doubt Ministries. Now, if his name rings a bell, it's probably because Andrew is an award-winning singer-songwriter and acclaimed worship leader and pastor. Andrew brings so much to the ministry, including a master's degree in theology, a huge network of Christian influencers and leaders, and most important, a vision and heart to reach young people with the truth of God's Word. So please pray. Pray for Andrew's leadership and pray that In Doubt, with God's blessing, would have a profound impact on the spiritual journey of many young adults across our nation. To find out more, check out indoubt.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. In the ministry of Jesus, we read of a great many encounters between the demons and Jesus. And in case you've never read the Gospels, here's a spoiler alert. The demons lose. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
But in the ministry of Jesus, we see him casting out demons in and around Israel. You see, a great many of the demon-possessed are in fact Jews. The long history of Jews with idolatry and then with the false religion of the Pharisees has resulted in many demon-possessed people. But of course, Jesus also dealt with demons in the Decapolis, which are the 10 Gentile cities around the Sea of Galilee. But again, this happened around Israel. However, Jesus had said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. He had said this in Caesarea Philippi, a place in Israel built by Herod Philip, a place that was filled with pagan temples. Jesus was in fact saying, I'm going to invade Satan's strongholds and his gates, his walls of defense will not keep my gospel from penetrating. And now here in the Greek city of Philippi, an important demon-possessed girl. She's instantly cured of that which torments her and that which leads her to anguish and madness. But as I've said, the city of Philippi comes to a halt. You know, in her day, no army would have gone to war without consulting an oracle. And, And that's what she was to her culture. No matter the harm that was done to her personally, she was necessary for the functioning of that culture. And that's what the Emperor Julian complained about in that famous poem that I quoted. Yeah, the pagan gods were fickle and they were cruel and they destroyed countless lives, but man, they spiced things up. And here's the first encounter between paganism and Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, the demons flee and the girl's left in her right mind. How about the drama is about to kick into high gear. Acts 16, 19 to 24. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them To the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowds joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now we see the reason for the rage. Their hope of abusing this girl, making money from her, it's gone. You know, the attitudes, it's not unlike so many pimps around the world today. I mean, if you deliver the girls under their tyranny, those pimps fly into a murderous rage. For them, the profit comes from human misery and it better not stop. Again, we have to wonder what Gibbons was talking about when he talked about the, you know, more tolerant paganism than the Christian faith. And so Paul and Silas were seized. So let's stop here because for a reason that's not explained in the text, Timothy and Luke are left unharmed. So why is that? One possible explanation is that Paul and Silas were clearly the leaders and were seen as the instigators. Ah, But I think there's another reason. The other reason is found in the charge, these men are Jews. That is Timothy, although his mother was a Jew, his father was a Greek, and he would have been thought of as a Greek in Philippi. And of course, Luke had no Jewish ancestry at all. And if I'm right about the Philippians having followed the lead of Rome and having banished all Jews from their city, that's a serious charge. The Jews have come back in with their monotheistic religion. See, many modern Bible readers are surprised to find that one of the charges that pagans brought against Christians were that they were atheists. That is, they denied all the gods and goddesses. See, at any rate, the charge that these men are Jews, that was a serious charge indeed. And then comes the next charge. They're disturbing our city. And of course, the charge of disturbance of the peace of a city, that was serious. Rome had a history 
of putting down disturbances with military force, bringing death on a city. To be in danger of civic disturbance was taken very seriously. People who disturbed the peace would be dealt with swiftly and with brutality. And then where's the evidence for the disturbance? Well, we might say because they cast out the demon of this oracle, and now the city is left without a word from the gods. But if that's what was said, you'd have had to call the girl, and you'd have had to recognize that the great oppression that hung over her head, that daily encounter with demons, had been removed from her. Jesus had set her free. But here we see the hypocrisy that the owners of this slave girl say that these men are advocating customs that are not lawful for the citizens of Philippi and of Rome. They're advocating illegal activities in this city. You know, in the ancient world, that custom and a religion, those two words are joined together. We might interpret their accusation as follows. These men are trying to convert our city to Judaism, which is illegal. And by the way, just a point of application here. In many countries in the world, persecution only begins when people are one to faith in Christ. The minute somebody who wasn't a Christian confesses faith in Christ now, the authorities take over. And so that's what happened in Philippi. No mention is made of the abuse of the slave owners of this abused girl or about how Paul has set her free from a lifetime of misery. No mention is made of those pimps who make their money at the expense of this girl. All of that remains off the table. Rather, it's a matter of how one frames this matter. This is about conversion, they say. Anti-conversion laws must be respected. And so Paul and Silas are found guilty. The magistrates of the city would have had Paul and Silas stripped. 2 Corinthians 11.25, Paul mentions that on three occasions he had been beaten with rods, and this was clearly one of those times. The beatings would have been severe. It would have greatly affected their health. You know, I want you to notice that no legal procedures were followed here. Those being accused should have been permitted to give a defense, but Paul could give none. But the frenzy that's now felt in Philippi, well, that overrides all legal procedures. Furthermore, if the magistrates would have done their job, they would have soon discovered that Paul was a Roman citizen, as was Silas, and the law was clear on this matter. No Roman citizen was permitted to be beaten with rods, but all of that was ignored. This mob is a lynch mob. This is not justice. This is what mobs and riots and street protests and eventually reason gets replaced by passion. Passion is cruel. Eventually, the two men are thrown into prison, and not just prison, but the inner prison. Their feet are put into stocks in which they are unable to move. Stocks were often used in that day as instruments of torture because the way that they were configured meant that they were designed to inflict pain. You know, archaeologists have dug up the prison in Philippi, and it's located next to the Agora, and I visited it, and I tried to imagine the horrors that were there. That brings me back to the comments made by Gibbons about paganism being more moderate than the Christianity that replaced it. You know, at the outset, it must be said that this event paints a picture quite different from a tolerant and peace-loving faith. In contrast, it's faith in Jesus that teaches one to love one's enemies, to do good to those who persecute us. Ah, the critic might respond, but when you get to the Middle Ages, we find the church torturing people. Yeah, that is true. But let's remember, by that time, the church, it was not the church of Jesus anymore in no way. Their teaching was not connected to the teaching of Jesus. Indeed, I would argue that the church of the Middle Ages became like the pagan religion that it sought to replace. In other words, the old hostile paganism was back. It came back clothed in garments of the church. 
So my point is, paganism is never tolerant. It's always hostile. Followers of Jesus, if they're truly followers of Jesus, are not seeking to use political power to force people into their religion. Read the teachings of Jesus, and you're going to find he inspired no armies to fight for his revolution. Indeed, appearing before Pilate, he said, My kingdom is not of this world, for if it were, my followers would fight. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. That's also the case in the book of Acts. We don't find Paul and Silas attempting to get a seat on the city council of Philippi. See, they're not working from a political agenda, thinking that enough government power will force their position on the population. That's not their goal. Indeed, their goals are, on the one hand, lower than people expect. But on the other hand, they're, of course, higher than people expect. The reality is that Paul and his team arrived in Philippi to preach Christ and to show how forgiveness from sins might be obtained, how to find peace with God and hope for eternity. And in the process, they came upon a demon-possessed girl and delivered her from that which bound her in chains. And it is this, that it is the glory of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus awaits the day when the rightful ruler will take his place on the throne. Yes, of course, that's true. But in the meantime, it seeks to free the oppressed and bring salvation to the lost. And that, that, that is the greatest revolution the earth has ever seen. Thanks so much, John. Now, here's a bit of a tough question, certainly a timely one. Does the gospel fit into politics? Yeah, I mean, Ben, I know that's a difficult question, and I know we don't really have the time to get into all the details of how it does, but, you know, the the short answer is, of course it does. The gospel has to be brought everywhere. I I love what Abram Kuyper, the Dutch prime minister from the, I believe, 1800s, said, you know, over everything that exists, Christ calls out, mine. He owns everything. And that must include also the political structure. So I think there is a place for the preaching of the gospel in politics. I mean, I don't think, you know, that we ought to think in terms of right and left the way we do today, but rather we need to think about how we can proclaim Christ at every single place in society. That includes in Parliament. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, confronting the power base right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, I wanted to thank you for your prayers, your gifts, and support towards the calendar year-end financial goal. We're so appreciative to report that the campaign was a ministry success. I can't express enough our gratitude for your generosity. Now, Back to the Bible Canada is well-equipped to begin a new year of sharing the gospel to more people in more ways than ever before. Your gifts allow this Bible teaching program to reach the ears of so many, some growing in faith, others perhaps being introduced for the first time. One listener recently wrote, God knows and cares about the intimate details of our lives, and he is using you to communicate his love and mercy and grace. Please continue to support the ministry in 2023, or even perhaps become a new monthly partner. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.